0: Hey, and welcome to City Hall Stories. I'm Jack English, and I think local governments have some of the most interesting stories that exist. Almost everything we do on a regular basis is affected by local government decisions, and this provides a massive opportunity for real change if we better understand how it works and how to affect it. I hope the incredible humans you hear from in this podcast inspire you to look closer at your own local government and become a part of the solution. Arnaldo Matas follows a rich group of chief resilience officers we've had on the podcast, one of the most fascinating and critical roles cities are implementing to address rapid environmental and social changes. Arnaldo, now leading a private consultancy, oversaw one of the largest resiliency programs in the world, leading the sustainability charge for the massive Mexico City. In this role, Arnaldo had to grapple institutional objections and cultural sensitivities owing to the rich Mexican history. Today we discuss the precarious situation Mexico City sits with air pollution, draining water supplies and earthquake risks, how narcos on the Mexican border impact Mexico City, and what it will take for regular folks to get in the game around the climate fight. Please enjoy my conversation with Arnaldo Matas. <laughs> Arnaldo, really interested in this conversation uh, about a country I'm personally fascinated by. I'm looking forward to digging into your background in local government and and more recently as you move into a local government adjacent role to perhaps target something that you and I have spoken about previously, the concept of long-term planning deficits, as you put it. So before we jump into the weeds on your specific roles, do you mind sharing what that term long-term planning deficit means to you? Sure. Uh, Jack,
1: first of all, thank you for the invitation uh, to the podcast. And yeah, what I mean is uh, we are facing problems in relation to climate change where we need to imagine the future in the long term with different scenarios that will uh, constrain and put in difficulties different services within cities. For example, in the case of Mexico City, uh, the issue around water supply. We need to have a long-term perspective uh, to be more prepared and more resilient to climate change impacts, uh, including potential droughts, uh, regional potential droughts that would compromise in a way, or water supply. For example, a regional drought that will compromise water supply to Mexico City, that will be a major challenge for the city. Mexico City is also overexploiting its local aquifer without a a sustainability plan on the use of, of the aquifer. So at some point in the next 30 to 40 years, probably will uh, lose our major source of water. So you cannot uh, follow the political administration cycles, which in the case in Mexico are just six years. Um, You need a long-term perspective, a long-term vision where you want to move your city, for example, in terms of being climate resilient. And uh, there are other issues as well uh, that uh, would benefit definitely from a long term perspective. And that's why I call a long term planning deficit that many major cities around the region in Latin America and I would say in middle income countries and, and developing countries, they don't have a long term planning perspective. And I know this also, it's a problem in in other industrialized countries and cities uh, in the world. Um, So it's not just an issue of of developing countries, but uh, it's it's a general trend, I would say, in, in, in cities around the world that need to be addressed.
0: So you were previously the Chief Resilience Officer of Mexico City, and we're going to touch on that in a little bit more detail in a second. But you're actually the third Chief Resilience Officer that we've had on the podcast. We had uh, Linio from Athens. We had Mike from Wellington. And, and Linio said her definition of resiliency was ensuring that any solution that we implement is multi-beneficial in the sense that it doesn't just solve a single problem, but treats the entire problem set at once as interconnected. And, and Mike from Wellington said something similar. So would really love to understand to you what is resiliency
1: well i think from my perspective it's it's around planning as well and it's being able to overcome major risks also stresses within the city. And for that, you need to, to, to look broadly at what are the types of risks that the city may confront. And you need to have a continuous evaluation of those risks and have the flexibility and robustness within the city to confront those risks and learn uh, from them. And this is a continuous pr- uh, process. It's, uh, you know Cities are dynamic. Uh, We are we are living in a very dynamic world within the Anthropocene, uh, where global change phenomena are affecting cities. Therefore, you need to be very flexible to address new challenges. Uh, And so, I, I think also in terms of resilience, it should be embedded within. Very different actors uh, within the city, not just the government, but also other stakeholders like non-governmental organizations, the major universities within cities, and uh, for sure the private sector as well, which can play a critical role when a disaster hits a city. So I would integrate in the holistic planning approach that uh, looks very in detail at the potential risks and scenarios confronting those risks within the city.
0: So let's go back in time a little bit maybe a few years to your induction as the chief resilience officer of Mexico City. It was part of, correct me if I'm wrong, the 100 Resilient Cities network program. What were thinking back some of those challenges that you faced taking on this role in the largest city in North America?
1: Yeah, well, it was uh kind of a wonderful time for me because I really appreciate a lot the, the kind of the network and all the learnings that I had to that time and it was changing to time it had different phases initially well, 100 resilient cities pioneered by the Rockefeller Foundation initiated this initiative to build uh, resilient strategies around the world and well Mexico City was selected I think because of its multi-hazards exposure uh, and as well because it has uh, lots of different capacities, technical, human capacities that are good to experiment uh, on different topics and innovate as well, and then learn that and and export uh, that or import different actions that you would like to to undertake in, in different parts around the world. Initially, I was just a consultant for the government the first three years i was uh, not a public official actually i was working through my consultancy at the Ithaca environmental having the role uh, which was not official but uh, as uh, the chief resilience officer um, i was supported by the mexico city's government but i was not an official i was helping them to lead the building up of the mexico City resilience strategy Uh, in close partnership with the Ministry of Environment uh, and the mayor of the city. So through that phase, I interacted a lot with very different types of stakeholders, not just the government. I mean, it was very important to to integrate this work uh, transversally with different departments and ministries within the city, but as well to have a broader approach with other stakeholders. As I mentioned before, we work a lot with some of the major NGOs working on different topics on sustainability within the city, for example, on sustainable mobility. At some point, we created the the Resilience Strategy, which was, I think, very well received by different stakeholders uh, because they participated from the beginning. One of the initial tasks within my role as chief resilience officer was uh, building on existing programs and actions that at that time were not uh, kind of named uh, to build resilience, but in fact, they were doing this. For example, in Mexico City, which is probably well known across the globe, is that we face a terrific challenge with traffic and and air pollution as well. It has improved through time in the last 20 years, but still it's it's one of the major challenges, air pollution and traffic. Uh, For example, just on average, uh, citizens do around three hours per day commuting. And that has enormous impacts on the well-being of people, but as well on on the construction of integrated communities and and families. And overall, it has an impact on the economic turn and economic efficiency of the city. Uh, An agenda on sustainable mobility has been built up uh, in the last two decades uh, to change the paradigms of a car-oriented investment and change that pyramid of priorities. And today, by law in Mexico City, the priority are the pedestrians. Uh, the priority is to walk, to be able to walk and reach your destination. The second priority is uh, improved bike, bi- bike lines and bike infrastructure and then come massive transport. But for decades, all the infrastructure built and major investments within uh, mobility were oriented towards car so that has changed and there are a lot of civil society groups that have built and helped the, go- the local government to make that switch and and today we can see already some of, of those transformations within the city we have still a lot to do and uh, we are not yet there where we can say that we have a sustainable mobility city but some of the bases i think are there and where all the administrations are working towards there on public massive transport and improving uh for example bike bicycle infrastructure so i think that was critical at the time we were very lucky, I would say, that at the time that we were constructing the resilience strategy within Mexico City, there was a, a window of opportunity because the new constitution for Mexico City was discussed. And we lobbied there to integrate the resilience Concept within the Constitution. So at that time, one of our main recommendations to institutionalize resilience within the administration was to create a resilience agency, which was created in 2018. And I was invited there uh, to be the first general director of this resilience agency for the administration. So that's when I became a really an official for the city and not just a, a consultant for the city. Unfortunately, with the new administration that we had elections in 2018, uh-huh. this emerging agency with the new administration disappeared And also the paradigm, which I think that the recent strategy of Mexico City has a very holistic approach, uh, was also changed into a more oriented towards uh, disaster risk management. All the kind of, uh, the, the agency was integrated within the Ministry of Civil Protection. As I mentioned before, the lens and the paradigm was a change for disaster risk management within my perspective and my experience, well, it, it loses because it it doesn't address some of the major challenges that the city is facing, like the one of uh, the water sector and as well uh, mobility, which is a,
0: one of the major stresses for our citizens within the city. I think that's, that's fantastic background. Unfortunately, in the West, Mexico gets a pretty bad rap In terms of whenever you switch on CNN or Fox news or MSNBC, it always seems perhaps we're just getting images and stories from some of the more unstable areas, but it certainly seems like the extremes in Mexico are very extreme, right? Maybe we're in, some folks are sitting in central Mexico city, quite affluent. It's quite safe. It's quite stable. Whereas if you go to you know different areas, maybe toward the borders, it can look a lot different. Does that political and social environment present any interesting challenges for Mexican local governments in general, or perhaps even the federal government, as it thinks about creating a united strategy to confront climate change?
1: Yeah, I mean, for sure, Mexico City cannot be isolated from what is happening in the rest of the country. Mexico City is not just the capital of the country, but it's also like the political center of the country, also the major economic hub uh, within the country. So, for example, just in terms of being the political center, anything, any political disruption that may be in any town or any other state may have ramifications within Mexico City in terms of demonstrations, for example. Many, for example, peasants, if they have a conflict with water, which is deal at the federal level, sometimes the distribution of water, they may come to Mexico City to demonstrate because they don't agree with what is happening. And this includes issue around security, for example. And so in terms of climate change, you are very right. We cannot isolate Mexico City from the rest of the country. And there is one simple fact. Mexico imports around 35% of its water from neighboring water basins. In some of those basins, we have problems with organized crime, where they are controlling the territory and they are deforesting very critical areas for the recharge of the aquifer. That's how, uh, for example crime can be related to an unsustainable use of the forests, which at the same time impacts the recharge of the water basins where Mexico is dependent from, and in the future will be even more dependent from those water basins and forests. Uh, We call them water forests because they capture water, right? And um, so, there is an interlink, and there are sometimes very little mechanisms of Mexico City's governments to work with those strategic areas outside Mexico City's territory to build a more resilient approach around the environment, water, and climate change. That's the way it is. And that's how we need to work. And we need to innovate and and create new mechanisms to, for example, in terms of climate change, to forget about the political boundaries and work at the water basin. Political boundaries within climate change, they don't make any sense sometimes. So that's one way. But the other way is that uh, one thing you need to understand and, and the public need to understand is that well, one thing is Mexico City. Mexico City is around 8 million people, 8 to 9 million people. But then it's the metropolitan area, which is around 22 million people. You involve other three states. And then we have a larger area, which is the megapolitan area, which is the region uh, where other five to six, seven cities, and some of them are major cities. And we share water, we share Also, the air basin. Uh, So, for example, with the metropolitan area, there is no way we can solve uh, mobility issues or air pollution problems without a metropolitan approach. The problem is through time in the last decades, we had a very weak metropolitan uh, work with the other states. We have uh, weak uh, mechanisms, financial mechanisms to share projects and to invest on long with a long-term perspective on a common interest and, and threat for the entire region. That needs to change, but I don't see... Uh, well, right now there is an opportunity because usually Mexico City has been governed by one political party and the country has been governed by another political party and the state of Mexico by another political party, which create low incentive to collaborate. But today... We have the federal government and Mexico City's government with the same political party. And we have an opportunity to create those co- collaborations and initiatives to be more collaborative at the at the regional level, I would say. But I don't see that happening uh, even with that uh, opportunity
0: there. So so last question before we jump on to your work with Ithaca Environmental. Let's focus in on just one critical issue, right? Water usage, which we've talked quite a bit about. Is the key to moving toward a more sustainable pattern of consumption ultimately going to be driven by more strict and intelligent supply and regulation? Or is it more of an educational route that aims to change consumer behaviors regardless of what the supply system is? I know what my answer is, but I'm very curious to hear your thoughts.
1: I think both are part of the story, Jack. I would say that definitely changing behaviors is critical. The higher the consciousness about where we are, what is happening with our globe, what is climate change, what are the projected impacts, and how you translate that into action It's critical. And that may change from using your car to be a pedestrian and, and biker, Uh, Or to convert yourself to a vegetarianism uh, and stop uh, eating meat just to reduce your emissions and the global impact of of those emissions. But at the same time, we need to understand that not everybody will do that and change its behavior. We live in a consumerist society, a capitalist society, where consumerism is one of the of the building blocks of, of that society. And therefore, uh, technology plays a critical role in order to open the space for change. And, and for example, one very good uh, example is uh, Uber and, and the sharing economy. Before, everyone needed to have a car or wanted to have a car just... It's a status issue. Today, you don't need a car. It's it's actually, it's not economic efficient. Maybe you just, when you need a car, you ask for the car with your Uber. So that created an opportunity also to be more environmental friendly, probably. And so therefore, I, I think technology and the market could create also a lot of alternatives if there is a higher consciousness about being more sustainable in general for the public. That creates a demand for a change in technology and, at the end, on, on behavior. Uh, but it's very important to recognize uh, the, the time we are living. We need to have a huge transformation within, within this decade to build a, not just a more resilient society, but a low-carbon-based society. And here, cities are critical to do that transformation. Um, So I think there is a, because the the rate of the change is so critical, there is a huge need of city governments uh, to help to do that transformation to help create higher consciousness about what it means to be a car dependent or uh, try to change uh, for a more sustainable transport mode and also to reflect on your consumption and be, try to make them more environmentally friendly
0: as possible. So moving on from time in Mexico City and entering full-time your work with Ithaca Environmental again. Can you give us a bit of a rundown, A, on, on kind of the mandates, where your focus is there, what you're striving to achieve, and then B, a little bit more concretely, what are some of the, I guess, more exciting projects that you are tackling or you have tackled so far through Ithaca?
1: Sure, sure. Eat gas already more than 10 years. The story is that I was doing my PhD at Oxford University, and then I met two other friends from Mexico. They were working there in a carbon uh, company, and we became very good friends. And, and we saw that we had a potential into creating a consulting company addressing uh, both. I was working my PhD on adaptation and resilience, so working on adaptation and resilience, but they were covering all the carbon market and mitigation efforts. So the combination of of our uh, work, we decided to create, uh, originally we opened the company in the UK in 2009, but it was really working just when I came back to Mexico. I opened the office in in Mexico and that's where we started to, to have projects in reality. And we have built uh, state-level climate change programs in around four states within Mexico. Uh, at the same time, we help as well to build municipal-level climate action programs. That has helped us to understand very well the, the kind of the legal framework within Mexico to build these programs and to assess the climate risks and opportunities for certain regions of Mexico, we have a lot of work. Uh, for example, within the the uh, Yucatan Peninsula, we recently built their regional hydrological program, uh, where we could integrate climate change scenarios and risks for the first time in in a hydrological regional program within Mexico. Kind of, we are proud of that project. It was a very challenging because it started just with the pandemic. Uh, we had to transform a very usually a very dense consulting process at the virtual level, but at the same time with the challenge of reaching out indigenous communities where internet access is low. So we had to build a mix, a hybrid, uh, kind of uh, consulting process where we just digital media, but as well, we create people on the ground, visiting and, and also translating into the media language, the information so that they participate uh, within the process. In recent time, also, I think the market within Mexico and in general in the world, in the globe, just With this need to to make this huge transformation, we are receiving more and more projects from the private sector at the national level, but also at the multinational level where companies, they want to build their climate change strategy. And here, I would say that there is more work on kind of mitigation strategies, science-based targets, and different standards that companies need to follow. In comparison with uh, adaptation and resilience, it's not so kind of the frameworks to work towards uh, adaptation and resilience within the private sector are still at an early stage. And and I think we are kind of, at least in Mexico, some of the front runners uh, in terms of that we are trying to innovate and, and to communicate the best of the climate science uh, for the decision making process and to simplify it so that a CEO can understand uh, what are their major risks and, and take decisions.
0: Fantastic background and some really exciting work going on there. So, for our, our closing question here, I'll ask you it's pretty simple. What is one accepted truth of local government that you think is incorrect?
1: Yes, well, I think from my experience uh, working within Mexico City and, and the government, I think there is a gap of policy action for the informal sector and population. Mexico is probably, as well as the U.S., are very unequal societies. And usually the administrations, well, all the people working within the administrations are part of the formal economy. And in my perspective, there is a lot of barriers towards working with informal sectors within the economy. And you need to know in Mexico, around 50 to 60% of the economy is within the informal sector. Uh, There is a lot of informal settlements where there are many barriers to just help those uh, people living in those conditions to improve their lives, to be more resilient, to be more sustainable, just because sometimes it's prohibited by the legal system to work uh, with an illegal settlement. So I see Uh, For example, we had the last earthquake in 2017 in Mexico. Uh, Many areas which were illegal settlements originally and which were built as unifamiliar households. Originally, the legal system and the response from the government didn't have a lens on those communities. They didn't look at unifamiliar households for the reconstruction process. Later, this was obvious and, and the, the law was changed and adjusted to integrate those communities. Uh, but what I can tell is that many, for example, of the of the within Mexico City, once we had the reconstruction process after the earthquake of 2017, many of the of the policies uh that make economical sense. They just work in the central areas where you you could have the market interacting with the policies, uh, for example, to accelerate the reconstruction policies. That Context would not exist in other communities more uh, within uh, where, in, within the informal settlements. And it's the same if we want to have, like, uh, create larger adaptive capacities and resilience for the most vulnerable populations within Mexico City, but as well, I would say, in general, in the developing World, We need to work with, with uh, the informal sector. We need to work with informal communities. I think there is a lack of innovation and effort to work with those communities from the government, also from the private sector. And I would, I would like that to change. Uh, I don't see as well at the international level a huge recognition of those communities which probably are the most vulnerable to climate change, for example. And that's an important uh, aspect.
0: Uh, Fantastic. I I really enjoyed that answer. It was pretty thought-provoking. So Ronaldo, I think this episode has given incredible insight into the front lines of sustainability work within, I guess, a pretty enigmatic country, right on the border between developing and developed. And I think no doubt many of the issues that Mexico has faced so far will begin to affect many more Western countries in the coming decades. So it's been great to hear your lessons and, and how we can learn from them. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you very much
1: for inviting me to the podcast. Hello to all the listeners. And and again, thank
0: you very much. It's me again. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts and connect with me on LinkedIn. See you soon.